Good morning. We have made it to the end of the Ten Commandments. Uh, First service applauded when I said that. Um, And I told them, believe me, no one is happier about this than my kids. Because I keep uh, embarrassing them with stories. And you will not be disappointed today. We are going to be studying uh, commandment number 10 today, do not covet. And because it's the last command, um, we want to, at the end, I'll have a prayer at the end, and then we'll wrap up the whole Ten Commandments again, just to kind of remind us of the general thing of what we've been trying to learn. So I have more material today than I've had for any message so far, and some of the messages have been kind of long. So I'm telling you that now, so if you need to go to the restroom or something like that, you'll be able to do that, because the only two options I really have are to talk as fast as Dylan talks, or to make you uh, get to Frisch's after the Baptists are already there. So there's not really a good solution, so we're going to go ahead and just try to dig in. So today we're talking about covet. Covet is a word that we really don't use. I've I've never really used the word covet outside of a church setting, so it's something we're definitely going to have to explain, we're going to have to define. It's a churchy word, and we've got to try to figure out exactly what it means, so we're going to spend some time defining, defining this command, and then we're going to look at the command and see why it's unique. It's a lot different than the other nine commandments, so we'll take a look at that, and then we'll try to make some decisions about what we should do now that we understand it. So I'd like us to start by by looking at the uh, scripture, the passage, which is Exodus chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, look at Exodus chapter 20. We're all the way down to verse 17 now. Exodus 20, 17 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That's one of the commands. So I have a long definition of the word covet, and it goes something like this. It's an ungodly, discontented desire. Passion, envy, craving, greed, jealousy, obsession, longing, or lust for someone or something that is not supposed to be yours. So... I'm guessing that none of us are going to remember that in the next two or three minutes. I want to say it one more time, and you can take some notes in your bulletin, because I do love this definition. It's an ungodly, discontented desire. Passion, envy, craving, greed, jealousy, uh, obsession, longing, or lust for someone or something that is not supposed to be yours. So that's the definition we're going to use today, but I have a quicker tweetable definition. If any of you use Twitter, you can tweet this one out uh, later today. Coveting is when you don't want what God wants for you. It's that simple. When you don't want what God wants for you. The simplest definition of coveting is God says, this is what I want for you, and you say, that's not what I want. And then there's conflict between what God desires for you and what you desire. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, God mentions some specific things not to covet. He says you should not desire your neighbor's house, you shouldn't desire your neighbor's wife, you shouldn't desire your neighbor's servant or his ox or his donkeys. And then he adds, or anything else that belongs 
to your neighbor. So the list isn't meant to be this all-inclusive list that you can covet some things, but not these specific things, because we shouldn't desire anything that belongs to someone else. In light of our definition, anything that isn't supposed to be ours. In today's terms, that would include things like houses, cars, boats, campers, vacation homes, but it also could mean experiences. Things like someone else's job or their hobby or a trip that they take. And it can even include things like their clothes or their style or their abilities. And there's a difference in appreciating these things. We should admire these things, be happy for other people who have these things. But sometimes we can cross over the line and start to desire them. And that brings us into conflict with God. So let's talk about how covet, how coveting this command, how is it's unique. The first nine commandments are all about external things, at least on the surface. But coveting is unique because it was really, it's really about an internal thing that happens. Commandments number one through four are all how we respond to God. These are the love God commandments that Jesus talks about. There is one God. Don't make an image of that God. That's an external thing. Don't misuse God's name. That will be an external thing, saying a word out loud. Reserve a day for rest and worship. That's an external thing. The things you do externally, how are, that's how you would sin in this, in, this, in this instance, is external. Then commandments 5 through 9 are about loving others. So those things like honor your parents, external. Do not murder, that's external. Don't commit adultery, that's something you do outside of yourself. Don't steal, that's something you do outside. Don't lie, that's something you do outside of yourself. And then we come to covet. Covet is internal. Coveting is a sin. We know that, it, we know that sin is living outside of the way God created us to live. And we know that sin always leads to suffering. We've been talking about that every week. Sin always leads to suffering. And we can clearly see how those other nine commandments, how the sins associated with those other nine commandments lead to suffering. When we lie, when we steal, when we murder, those always lead to suffering. They hurt us or they hurt someone around us. But coveting is different. Coveting is an internal sin. It's a private sin. It's personal. And one thing that changes when God gives this command is we learn something new about God. We learn that God not only sees, he not only cares about our outward actions or our works or our deeds, but he knows our heart. And that's a new thing in these commands, that God knows our heart. He knows our longings. He knows the thoughts of our mind. So studying these commandments over the past few months has been fun for me. It's been challenging, and I hope that you've been challenged by what we've learned as well. And I've heard more than a few people say uh, most weeks when they come in, uh, I haven't broken this command. That's, that's a big joke every week when we come in. I say, oh, you might want to wait until you hear what we talk about. This week's command is about not misusing the name of the Lord. I never do that. Or this week's command is about murdering. I've never murdered anyone. But what we learned, and myself included, is that we've broken all of these commands, in principle at least. Likely, each of us has broken every one of them. I certainly have, and we come in each week thinking, I've not broken that command because we're really just thinking about the external things. But God cares about the internal. So this shift 
from external to internal, I think is important because it helps us see that this command is a little different. And another thing we see about this command, the way it's different, I think even the reason it's the last command is because all of the other sins have their root in this one cause, coveting. Let's recap the series. First commandment, there's only one God. God is in authority. People fight with God over his will. They fight with God over his word. What they're really doing is coveting God's position. They want God's authority. Commandment number two, we should only worship one God. He's the one who gets glory. He's the one who gets worship. But we like glory for ourselves. We want our name to be great. We want people to know who we are. We want people to be thankful for what we do. We want people to honor us, to repay us. We want people to respect us. And that's really coveting the glory that belongs to God. Commandment number seven, do not commit adultery. Jesus illustrated this principle, if you were here that week, to talk about... um, when he talked about everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. If you were here, you remember we talked about everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery. We define lustful intent as desire, or we might have said covet. So adultery really starts with coveting. Before adultery exists externally, it starts with an ungodly, discontented desire internally. A passion, a craving, an obsession, or a lust for someone who is not supposed to be yours. So if you deal with coveting problem in your heart, you have already dealt with the adultery problem. Commandment number eight, do not steal. Stealing begins with coveting. You say, I really want that, so I'm going to take it. And your desire becomes uh, something that's so strong you would do almost anything to get it. It's cause and effect. So God puts coveting as the last command because it is at the heart of all of our sin. We become aware of our propensity to covet internally. And when we we become aware of that, we can not violate the first nine commandments by obeying the tenth. The only way toward being who God created us to be is to address the desires of our hearts. But our propensity to covet is so strong. And because it's an internal sin, because covet isn't a a word we normally use, most of us have never stopped to think about how prevalent it really is in this world. But our our entire economy in the United States is based on you coveting. If you've ever stopped to think about this, just in the last three or four generations how much things have changed. Some of you may remember watching a show called Little House on the Prairie. I was thinking about that a few weeks ago. Little House on the Prairie, if you're not familiar with the show, it's based on a family who lived in the 1880s. For perspective, my great-grandfather was a child in 1880, so just three generations back. So in the show, Charles would go to the store to get supplies, and he would go in and he would ask Nels Olson, the shopkeeper, some of you remember this, he would go in and ask him for specific supplies. When he went into the store, there weren't all kinds of, there were some items in the store, but generally when Charles needed something, he would go to Nels, and he would give Nels a list, and Nels would go back to the storeroom, he would get the supplies, and he would bring them out. Fast forward to today, in just three generations, Our purchasing experience 
has gone from going to a store to purchase a predetermined list of items that we need to literally having every imaginable item at our fingertips through Amazon or other sites or uh, even going to a mall. How many people have gone to a mall to window covet? Many of us have gone to malls just to look around. We purchase things we don't need. We purchase things we already have because there's a new and improved version of it. We purchase things we didn't even know existed before we went into the store. I try to imagine my great-grandfather walking through a mall. That would be something. Sensory overload. Not to mention, we have this ability with Amazon in two days or less to have literally anything we want delivered to our door. Coveting is rampant in our society. It's more prevalent than any of the other sins that we've talked about over the past two months. I'm confident of that. And it is a sin. So it hurts us. It's living outside of the way God created us to live. Luke chapter 12, Jesus is setting up a story called the rich fool. So Luke chapter 12 is one of the verses that's in your weekly reading guide, in your bulletin. You might want to take a look at that later this week. But when Jesus sets that up in verse 15, he says, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We live like our life consists in the abundance of our possessions. He's saying, don't have this ungodly, discontented desire. Don't have a passion, a greed, an obsession, a longing for something that's not supposed to be yours. It won't make you happy. It won't make your life better. You won't be fulfilled. You aren't defined by your stuff. That's what Jesus is telling us. Instead, be defined by what God wants for you. That's what we should want. And just like all the other commands that we've talked about, we tell ourselves, I'm okay, I don't covet, I haven't broken this command, but every one of us do. Certainly everyone living in this culture must be, as Jesus said, on guard of this. Because that's the marketing strategy of our culture. All of the messages you hear will say, you are defined by what you own. You are defined by the experiences you have. It's who you are. It's not who you are. God's saying, you, you weren't created to live like that. You were created in my image. Coveting is the root of breaking all of the other commands. It's putting yourself at the center of your life and worshiping yourself instead of God. And not a person in this room is innocent of it. But coveting, even though it's internal, doesn't just hurt us. It, like the other sins, also hurts those around us. Let's look at James chapter 4. James chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? I kind of had an interesting exercise when I read this, this passage. I thought about different fights that hap happened in my life and disagreements, and I tried to put it in the context of James chapter 4. So pay attention to that as we're reading this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God, and when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. 
So James says that the cause for fights among us is this discontented desire, this passion for something that is not supposed to be ours. So Paul writes in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice. But we can't do that because we're jealous and because we covet. It's hard to rejoice with those who rejoice. When our hearts are set on discontented desires, when we hear good news about someone, we become sometimes jealous, critical, or judging. Do you ever find yourself having a hard time rejoicing when others rejoice? Or maybe you have a friend who you can't tell good news to because they will always turn it into something that's bad with them. Some of you have those friends. Or maybe it's you or this friend who would always say, if I only had a different job, my life would be better. That's coveting. If I only had a different house, my life would be better. If I only had a different car, my life would be better. If I only had a different wife or husband, my life would be better. If I only could take a vacation, my life would be better. But the thing we have to remember about coveting is it's internal. So it's hard to recognize, even in ourselves. But it's a sin, and it's wrecking your relationships. A couple of years ago in May, our family planned a quick trip to go rafting in Tennessee. Our whole family was going. Uh, I don't know how old Reagan was, maybe seven years old. And uh, Easton's really was, was pretty small here too. So um, I'm, I'm kind of more adventurous than some other people in my family. So, um, so I tried to really uh, be restraining with this trip. Uh, we found a float trip. All right. So that means we were going to get in this raft and we were going to float down a river. We were going to enjoy all the beautiful mountain scenery. No rapids, very little paddling, just a nice peaceful float down uh, a river in North Carolina. So the night before our trip, the area got a really big rain. Uh, so we had driven already five hours uh, to Tennessee to spend the night in a hotel. And I wasn't even sure we were going to get a raft. That was the whole purpose we were going. And, and I thought the river was probably going to be too rough and they probably going to want to let us go. Uh, but the outfitter, uh, when we arrived at the river, he said, no, it's fine. It's perfectly safe. Um, we can give you some of these uh, wetsuits, but you won't even need them because you definitely will not fall in the water. Uh, the water. The water is cold and if it splashes on you, you might not like that. So, um, so that, that was the case. So we said, well, well, we'll do this. We'll go. We got on the, on the water. We got in the raft. And um, we realized pretty quickly, and even our guide realized, that the river had changed significantly because of the rain. It wasn't a peaceful float down a, a, you know, a, a glass river. Uh, it wasn't raging Class 5 rapids, but the river was moving really fast. And at, I don't know if I mentioned it was cold. I wasn't expecting there to be any rapids at all. So since there were, I decided to ask the guide if we could spice the trip up a little bit. And uh, if, you, if you don't know this about me, sometimes I don't make the best decision when it comes to adventures. I like to be a little bit more adventurous sometimes than other people around me. So I asked our guide if we could, um, if we could go through a rapid and paddle back upriver into the rapid and, uh, and try to get into this current where the, the rapid would hold our boat in the, in the water as it, it was flying past us. And some of you who've been rafting have done this before. You get into that current, and the water's moving past you, and you just float there. It's kind of really cool. So uh, it, it looks something like this. This is actually a video of that uh, happening. That's the most beautiful spot on the river, right? Peaceful river, beautiful mountain views.
So into the rapid. Boat turns around, paddles back up river into the rapid. And there we are, the river's holding us. So that's pretty cool, and it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's kind of a cool thing to do, and uh, it was fun, and um, everybody seemed to like it, and uh, I turned to the guide and I said, uh, we like that, can we do it again? So uh, here's a video of the second time we did it. I let this go on a little bit so you can see we actually did live. There we are back, uh, back grasping onto the kayak with, um, with all of our might. So, um, so we paddled back into that second rapid and we just couldn't make it over the hump. We couldn't get there. We folded up like a taco. It threw me and Brennan out. Jason Albers was the other person in the boat with us. He fell out like four seconds later. We're not exactly sure why he went out. Um, so... Uh, when you go into the water, especially when it's cold and you're not expecting it, you sometimes kind of panic. So um, I thought the entire boat had flipped over, so I'm just grasping for family members, uh, trying to reach them, not really worried about swimming. Um, and when I came to the surface, and you didn't see this in the video because the GoPro was on Reagan's helmet, not mine, but when I came up to the surface, I was under the boat. So my head hit the boat, and I was like, oh, no, what was going to happen here? And finally it spits me out about 30 yards downriver, and I see that Reagan, Angie, and Easton are safe in the boat. And uh, Brennan and Jason are safe near me, shivering in the water. Um, and my kids still occasionally ask, hey, do you remember that time you took us rafting and we almost died? <laughs> and I think that's a little overdramatic, but it did seem serious in the moment of what was happening. Now, I'll tell you that story because of what happened the rest of the trip that's not on film. The rest of the way down the river, Easton begged us to let him fall out of the boat. And we said, Easton, it's not safe to fall out of the boat. The water is higher than it's supposed to be, and it's cold. And the guide said, Easton, it's not really safe to be out of the boat. You really shouldn't do that. He just watched half of his family almost die. But he desired this thing so bad that he let it ruin the rest of his day. Like, we got back to the, to the shore, and he was furious with us and wouldn't talk to us the rest of the day. He was so upset because there was this thing he desired and he wanted that wasn't good for him, but he wanted it anyway. He desired it. And we think about that, and we think, oh, he was, what, you know, 10 years old or something. That's how kids are. They're so silly. And then we start to think about ourselves and realize that we do the exact same thing. We watch things like adultery destroy families around us. We know God's word says it's going to do that, but we still have these covetous desires that we let creep in and sometimes lead us all the way down that road. 
We see people struggle with debt and bankruptcy, but we still let greed and obsession drive us to make unwise or unethical financial decisions. We go ahead and jump into that thing that's not good for us, even though we know it. We think we know what's best for us. We think we know better than God even knows. We argue with what he says in his word. We argue what with what uh, wise counsel tells us other followers of Jesus. And uh, we just can't get our minds off of these desires. And it starts to affect us. It starts to make us negative. It starts to make us critical. And it starts to make us jealous. And it ruins our relationships. Ungodly, discontented desire. Coveting is when you don't want what God wants for you. So what's the answer? What's the answer to this all-prevailing sin that we can't get away from. The answer to coveting is contentment. The opposite of coveting is contentment. Contentment is wanting what God wants. Philippians chapter 4 puts it this way. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So Paul's learned the antidote for this sin. It's being content. And he's been in need, and he's had plenty, and he's been well-fed, and he's been hungry, and it's been all the same to him, no matter what. And he said that he's learned the secret. Did you notice that? He said, I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. Why does he say it's a secret? Because nobody's figured this out. It is all across our culture. It was all across his culture. Everyone dealt with this issue of coveting. No one could figure it out. And his day probably really wasn't all that different from ours when it came to coveting, but Paul had learned the secret. We're not defined by what we have. We're not defined by the experiences that we are able to have. So how do we define, how do we find contentment in this world that just bombards us with messages all day long? Paul shares that in the very next verse. Verse 13 says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. You ever heard that verse before? Somebody was joking earlier today is that, uh, yeah, that's the verse I saw on somebody's track t-shirt. I can do all things through, you know, talking about running five miles. We've heard this verse over and over, and we used it before for all kinds of situations. But Paul gives us the verse in context of learning how to be content because it's hard. I find it very hard to be content. But I know if I put Jesus at the center of my life and not my covetous desires, that I can do it. Scripture promises me that right here in Philippians. And if I work at keeping Jesus at the center of my life, which is commandment one, that he will do a work in me. And that work in me is, uh, is from having him at the center of my life and worshiping him. And what we talked about the first week when we started talking about the Ten Commandments, that what I worship, I start to become more like. And that's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to make us more like him, to be restored to the image of how God created us. Even though coveting is all around us, contentment is something that Jesus can do for you. Jesus gives us the strength to find fulfillment and purpose through a godly desire of becoming more like him. I'd like to pray right now uh, for our thoughts about contentment, and then we'll have Dylan come out and we'll wrap us up on the Ten Commandments. Let's pray. 
Father God, just uh, thanking you again uh, for today. Father, thanking you for the, uh, the way that you've provided everything we need. How, Father, you've given us so much, and uh, we know that uh, even more sometimes than we deserve. Father, I just pray that you would help us to become like Paul, that we would be able to uh, see that uh, contentment is, uh, is the way to uh, battle this uh, sin of coveting that we see all around us. Every commercial that we see, every time we walk through a store, all of the time, Father, uh, uh, coveting is bombarding us. Father, help us to battle that sin. Help us to learn to be content. Help us this week even to have conversations with other people we love and to uh, talk about how we can learn to be more content and to grow in this command. Father, I thank you for this time of studying the Ten Commandments. Father, we pray right now that we might just have, for a few more minutes, some, an open heart about what it is that you've been teaching us through these last two and a half months. And uh, Father, we thank you most of all for Jesus. Through him we can do all things, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. This has been a great ten weeks, uh, diving deeper into God's Word and growing in our understanding of what the Ten Commandments are all about. And I've got to be honest with you, there were some weeks when I got up to preach, I looked at the command, and I, I was a bit overwhelmed, just not knowing what to say. Because I know all of us are familiar with the Ten Commands. We grew up knowing that it's not right to steal, to lie, to, to murder, or to worship other gods. But also every week we got to the heart of the issue with each command, and I feel like over and over what we saw was that when it comes to keeping God's law and obeying the Ten Commandments, we often fall short and fail to measure up perfectly. But here's what we also found. Each week, we looked at the commands, and we saw that underneath the commands, underneath the rule, underneath the uh, list of do not do this, there were these blessings that God had for us. Whether that be marriages that last, families that flourish, or that we can avoid disappointment and find satisfaction when we devote ourselves to God. Every week, we saw that underneath the law was a promise. And when God makes laws or rules, uh, he, or when he creates a list of ten things not to do, his intent is to give us a blessing and also to keep us in right relationship with him. That's what these ten commands are about. And, and since the laws of God are really about his nature, then this means that they're entirely good. These laws are good. But to say that the law is good means that it's intended in every way to benefit us. That's the purpose of them, not to ruin us. So when we uphold the law, it only blesses us. Um, we often don't see that. Sometimes we even try to avoid that fact. But it doesn't change the reality and the truth that God's law has always been and will always be holy, righteous, and good. But let's be honest for a moment. We have heard in this room several times, and we say over and over here at Plum Creek that we're not saved by the law. We're, we're, we're not under the law. We're under grace, right? That's what we say all the, law, all the time. The law cannot save us. Through our own sin, we destroyed that possibility. So why did we spend 10 weeks out of our summer talking about these Ten Commandments and digging into the particulars of each command? Are not the Ten Commandments archaic and outdated? Are, are we not living in the New Testament times? Are we supposed to be under grace, not law? So what was the benefit? What was the purpose of all of this? Well, Paul talks about that. He addresses that very question about the law in general. The Ten Commandments represents a larger picture of the Old Testament, of all those laws in the Old Testament. And Paul recognizes that now that Jesus has come, people are going to begin to wonder, 
what was the point of the law? Why did we even have that? So his response to the question is found in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. I'll read that for us. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not know, I would not have known that coveting were, for I would not have known what coveting really was had the law not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but, the, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So let's break that down a little bit. What exactly is Paul telling us here? Well, Paul's teaching us first and foremost that the law makes us aware of our sin. If it were not for the commandments, the prohibitions, the do's and the do nots, then we would never know that we were doing wrong. If we didn't know coveting, for example, caused so much suffering, and we didn't have the command to remind us that we shouldn't covet, we could go on doing it and continue to do it, not recognizing or realizing the damage that it causes. And isn't that so true? Oftentimes it takes someone else outside the situation to explain to us and to help us understand how our wrong actions can bring about hurt and pain in order for us to understand why we shouldn't do certain things. And that is a huge purpose of the law. But also, when we recognize that in our sin we have broken the holy, righteous, and good law of God, we become personally aware of the fact that we are sinners. And when I say that, I don't mean the we are sinners in general. No, I'm talking about personal recognition. I am a sinner. And the law should do the same for you. Help you realize that you have personally broken the holy, righteous, and good law of God. And that you personally, just like me, are responsible for a part of the suffering in our world. It's just like when you look into a mirror. When you do, you begin to see all the things that are wrong, the things that need to be fixed, the, the way it should be, the good and perfect way. And just like with the law, when you see the way it should be, you recognize that you're far from where you need to be. And this recognition should bring about a personal sense of sinfulness before God. So here's my tendency, and maybe it's the same with you. I am rebellious. Mm -hmm. Although the presence of the law is supposed to keep me safe, it's supposed to protect me, it's supposed to bring me blessing, the reality is... When I face a law or a command, the desire inside me is to break it. When I see a speed limit that says 55, there's something in me that says, what if I go 60? Or what if I go 80? What happens then? And that's really at the heart about, uh, behind what happened with Adam and Eve, that, that first sin. They were told not to eat the one particular fruit. They could eat any fruit in the garden, but not this one fruit. And just like Adam and Eve, 
That makes me curious. It makes me want that fruit. It makes me desire it and feel like I have to have it. And that's what Paul said. Sin seized the opportunity. And that sin leads to suffering. And it leads to suffering every single time. It leads to pain and hurt in our lives and in the lives of others. But what it does more than anything else is it leads to the suffering of death. And by death, I mean a separation. Sin severs our relationship with God. Our sin separates us from the holy, mighty, and just God. Now, nowhere in this passage are we told that the law was the problem. The law is never the problem. Our sin always was and always is the problem. There's nothing wrong with God's law. It's holy, righteous, and good. However, the law can only do so much when it comes to our sin. The law's good when we obey it, when we keep the commandments. Furthermore, obedience to the law was meant to be the way of maintaining a right relationship with God and enjoying the blessings of life in His presence. And the law can actually accomplish that very purpose. It was intended to do that, but it can only do it when we obey and keep the law perfectly. And therein lies the problem. Our sin has destroyed that possibility because as we saw in the series over and over, we've never obeyed the law perfectly. Yeah, maybe we've never murdered someone and broken that command, but we have used careless and demeaning words to talk about other divine image-bearing creatures, so we're guilty. We haven't kept the law perfectly, and so there's suffering, pain, and ultimately death. See, remember, the law's good because it represents God. There's nothing wrong with it, but our sin seized the opportunity, and it destroyed our relationship with God, and it brought suffering in our world. And so now it's harder and harder for us to see what it means to live under God's rule and the blessings that could come from it. And because of this, because sin is so damaging and destructive, so evil, perverse, godless, as Paul says, utterly sinful, that is the reason why our, the law can do nothing about making right our relationship with God again. The law is powerless in regards to helping you and I restore our relationship with God and getting rid of all the suffering in our world. It's impossible for the law to do that. But it's not impossible for God to do it. Because the law was never intended to make our relationship with him right again. That, that wasn't the law's job. God never intended that our efforts would be the thing, our keeping of the commands would be the thing that would get rid of all the suffering. Our keeping of the commands aren't the things that restores our relationship with God. Only grace could do that. And grace is the opposite of the law. The law demands that if we keep the commands and keep them perfectly all of our lives, we get to escape the wrath of God and we don't have to experience suffering. But grace says, because Jesus kept the laws perfectly and he suffered the penalty on my behalf, even though I've broken the laws and the commands of God, I get to escape the penalty and the wrath. And this is the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. His primary purpose was to bring about a restored relationship between you and God. Something the law couldn't do. But something Jesus, through his death on the cross, accomplished once and for all. But what's so wonderful and amazing about the death of Jesus on the cross is not just that he died to make right our relationship with God, but that three days later he came back to life, demonstrating his power over both sin and death, sin and the suffering that sin brings. 
And the same resurrecting power that raised Jesus from the dead is given as a gift to anyone who would submit their lives to Christ. And that resurrecting power is the Holy Spirit. And so through the death of Jesus on the cross and the renewing work of the Spirit in the life of the believer, God is restoring and bringing back all of creation to live under His rule and under His reign, to eliminate and abolish sin itself, but also the suffering that sin brings. And it all started at the cross. It all started with grace, the free gift of salvation. And that's where it has to start with you personally. So over these last two and a half months, we've been really intentional about trying to share things that would, um, would, would mean a lot to a lot of different kinds of people. And I know some of you here today have never accepted Jesus uh, for the very first time. You've never officially declared that you want to follow Jesus. And I hope this series has been helpful for you. We had you in mind when we worked on this. We tried to be really clear and to get very, on a very basic level to help you see that you have sin just like we have. And that sin wrecks our lives. It always leads to suffering. It hurts those around us. And like we've talked about, these rules aren't the solution for your sin. But it, these rules, these laws, the commands help us understand that we need a better solution. Jesus is that solution. So we want to take time today, and we we don't do it like this every week. We want to take time today to specifically say, if you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, we want to give you an opportunity today to do that. We're going to sing a song in just a second. Dylan and I will be down front. You can come down front, and after service, we'll have a conversation about what that first step looks like for you. But perhaps you've already given your life to Christ, and maybe you're even a member here at Plum Creek. We hope that you have gotten something from this series as well. Our hope is that in this series, you've grown a deeper understanding of the heart of God, that he truly desires the best for you and he wants to bless you. We hope that you see his law as holy, righteous, and good, and that when you continue to live under his rule and under his reigns, blessings come. And so if you've already committed your life to Christ, you're even a member here at Plum Creek, what we want to do is call you to a higher level of morality, that you be above reproach, that you be honest, generous, compassionate, God-centered, content, concerned about others, faithful. And see, when we begin to live the way that God intended, it helps to eliminate the suffering in our world. If we're faithful in our marriage covenants, for example, that means one less family falling apart. If we're honest in the words that we speak, it means that others can trust us. When we continue to live and submit ourselves fully to God and allow Him to rule over our lives, blessings come and suffering will be diminished. But this also means that you and I need to be committed to sharing others with others the message of salvation, that we share Jesus with those that we encounter, our neighbors, our friends, our family, so that they too can enjoy in those same blessings that God has for us. I love the picture Dylan painted there about what the church is. Really, that's what he was talking about. This is what Plum Creek is. And there are some of you who made a commitment to Jesus a long time ago, and you've been away from church for some reason. Maybe you were at a different church, and now you found yourself here. For those of you who have already united with Christ, we challenge you to take the next easy step of making a commitment to Plum Creek, to join Plum Creek in membership. It's committing to working together with a group of people 
to lead others to a life-changing relationship with Jesus. All those things that Dylan just talked about. Working together to change our neighborhoods, to change our communities, and to change our world. We are about sharing with others this good news of Jesus, and we invite you to join us. That's our mission. And you can come down front during this song, and we'll talk to you about how to take that next step. So whatever your next step may be today, maybe it's committing to Christ for the very first time, getting rid of all the sin in your life, letting him take care of it. Or maybe you need to join a group of people who are committed to leading other people to Christ to eliminate the suffering in our world. We want to encourage you to do that, but we're all going to stand and sing this last song together. Let's stand.